continuing our sermon on a better faith, subtitle, Facets and Fallacies of True Faith. In case you missed it last week, we'll show it very briefly the uh, big idea. Big idea is that true faith finds its foundation, motivation, and endurance in God's revelation of himself and his promises to us. True faith finds its foundation, motivation, and endurance in God's revelation of himself and his promises to us. I don't know if you noticed that Eric only read through verse number 16. So that means next week we got to burn through 24 verses. I hope you're ready. We've been looking at these different facets and fallacies. And uh, the first one that we looked at, I'll just run through them last week's really quickly. The first one is the concept of true faith. And the fallacy here is that faith is an action or effort that I must perform. The facet is that true faith is confident assurance and rest in what God has said and what Christ has done. That's where we get the, uh, the concept of true faith. It's a, it's a confident assurance and rest. And it's resting in what God has said and what Christ has done. The second one is the commendation of true faith. We saw this in verse 2. The fallacy. Faith is necessary for salvation, but effort is what pleases God. The facet is this, that true faith is what God honors because our trust glorifies him rather than ourselves. Number three, the cornerstone of true faith. The fallacy is this, that faith is something I create and sustain of my own power. The facet or the reality is that true faith is dependent on the truth and sufficiency of God's word and the power of Christ's work. So those are kind of the foundations of this chapter of Hebrews chapter 11 and this topic of faith. And uh, the author here is going to expound upon those realities. He's going to help us understand even more how faith gets fleshed out in our lives. We have this understanding of faith that it is, it is a confident resting in an assurance of the reality and the truthfulness of the Word of God, both what He has revealed about Himself and what He has promised to us. And so it is that faith placed in the Word of God that is going to be fleshed out and and given examples of as we go through the rest of this chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. So this morning I want to start off with looking at the confirmation of true faith. The confirmation of true faith. Let's look at the fallacy first. The fallacy is that faith is all I need. Honor and obedience are for super-Christians. If you ever talked to anybody that kind of had this opinion, well, you know, I, I believed in Jesus, I'm saved. You know, I mean, if you really want to be, you know, top rung, you know, super Christian, sure, you can delve into trying to, trying to be good and obey the commandments and things like that. But really, you know, I, I'm good, right? I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I, I said the right things, I did the right things, and, you know, I... I'm good. I don't, I don't need all those, other, all those other things. 
This is where the, the temptation, if we're not careful to understand the word of God, we can fall into this, this idea of easy believism or uh, the, the concept, the biblical concept of, of eternal security can go off base. And we can begin to really trust in, in what we did and not trust in the word of God, not trust in what God's word tells us how we should live. You often hear somebody say something like this, God's grace is big enough to cover anything that I do. And while that is certainly a, ra- a reality that God's grace is greater than anything that we could ever say or do, that's not the way that we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. See, the confirmation of true faith is, that, is a proper response to God's word. It's not... It's not just that we're resting on it and we're good to go. Now we need need to respond in a way that is appropriate. And so true faith will always respond with this type of confirmation. And we're going to see this here in the the next few examples. It's a proper response to God's word. If we really believe what God's word says is true, then we will obey it. Ever thought about that? If we really believe that what God's word says is true, we will obey it. We won't throw up excuses. We won't won't say, yeah, well, but that's a gray area. We will obey the word of God if we really believe that what it says is really true. So let's look at this first example here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number four. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. If you're familiar with the story, we know that uh, Cain and Abel came and they, they brought offerings to the Lord. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why Abel's offering was was accepted and Cain's offering was not. I think as you read the passage, we, we find that really it was a heart issue more than necessarily the, the type of sacrifice. We see a, a heart that is hardened towards God in Cain and a heart that, that is uh, loving towards God in Abel. And we know that Cain was angry because God did not accept his offering and so he rose up and he killed his brother. Abel, from what we can tell, had one chance, really, to, to worship God in this way. He got, he got one shot. And, uh, and God says that he accepted his gifts. See, we don't know why Cain and Abel knew that they should bring an offering to the Lord, but there's something about the way that Abel came to the Lord that was different from the way that came to, Cain came to the Lord. There was a heart difference. And I think that that can be summed up in this idea of proper worship. Proper worship. See, if we are going to respond in the right way to God's word, it's going to start with proper worship. And that's what Abel is an example of. Even though he died, his blood still cries out, as God said to to Cain, I I hear your your brother's blood. His, His death was not meaningless. His death was purposeful. And his death gave us an example of one who comes to the Lord in proper worship by faith. So if we have true faith in what God's word says, we will come to him in proper worship as Abel did. 
Let's look at the next one, Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. We'll look at verse 6 here in a little bit. Enoch, another interesting story. Um, again, just, just a couple verses there in the midst of genealogies. And we see this statement about Enoch and how he, uh, he walked with the Lord. He pleased God in the way that he lived. There was something different about Enoch's relationship with God than everyone else on the earth. Because shortly after that, what do we see? We see the flood, right? We see God's judgment on, on all mankind. And so we have this testimony of Enoch, and it says, by faith, he was taken up. There was, some, there was a miraculous event in this man's life. Why? Because he walked with God. He walked with God. And that's the second response that I see here from the life of Enoch, and that is the proper walk, or maybe a proper relationship. If we really believe that what God's word says is true, then we will be cultivating a relationship with God. We will be walking with him on a daily basis. We will be seeking to please him. And we'll talk about that more here in a minute. Verse number seven, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If we're going to have faith in the word of God, if we're going to believe that it says what it says and it means what it says, then we will have a proper fear. We will have a proper fear. We'll have a proper fear in terms of judgment. We will have a proper fear in terms of awe of who, he, of who he is and what he has done. It's interesting, it says here that Noah being warned by God concerning events is yet, sin, yet unseen in reverent fear constructed the ark. It wasn't just obedience. That one's next, right? But it, in reverent fear, I, I don't think we really see that a whole lot when we, when we look at that uh, example of Noah. We go back to Genesis and we read the, the flood story. And I don't think the fear really comes out that much there. But it was an understanding that God was bringing judgment. He, he heard what God said about the judgment that was coming. And in fear, reverent fear, he obeyed. I have to ask us this question, how often do we obey out of a sense of duty and rather, rather than out of a sense of reverent fear? Do we obey the commands of the Lord simply because we have to? Or do we obey the commands of the Lord because we are in such awe of who he is and what he has done and what he has said that we can't help but respond in that way? That's the example of Noah. Verse number eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This is proper obedience. 
This is difficult because we have a call on Abraham's life and he's called to leave family. He's called to leave everything that he knows based on a promise that he, as we'll see later on, will never actually fully see. And he's called to go to a place that he doesn't even know. If I remember correctly, I think God told him, I'll tell you when you get there. (laughs) That's the Welch translation. But uh, he didn't even know where he was going. He was just following the leading of the Lord. He just obeyed the commands that he had at the time. I think a lot of times we, we want God to give us the map for everything in our life. We want him to just lay it out for us so that we can know where we're going. We, can, we have the GPS for life and we can, just, we can feel good and confident about it. But the reality is that's not how God works. He leads us step by step, day by day. And he asks us to, by faith, simply obey what he has revealed in his word. So that is the proper response of faith. That's our confirmation. You know, it's interesting that Satan has been fighting against faith from the very beginning. See, our our confidence in, in what God has said cannot allow for doubt. Doubt can have no part of it, but yet that's what we see in the very first sin, is it not? What did Satan say to Eve, he said, did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat? And of course, then he twisted it, right? Trying to trick her. But what did he do? He, he pulled out the, does it really mean this? Did God really say that? And he's doing the same thing even here today. So often we, we want to uh, change or twist the things that God has commanded for us to make us feel better about either not obeying it or make us feel better about how we're obeying it, how we're trying to obey it. But the reality is that we, if we are really believing, if we are really trusting and really resting in the word of God, we will respond in obedience. Are we really responding in obedience? See, works are a confirmation that our faith is real. They're not something that our faith faith rests in. They're confirmation that what we believe really is real, that it really does have an impact on our life. That is the confirmation of faith, is these actions of obedience, these actions of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. James chapter 2 tells us this reality, and we, we went through that not too long ago. So I'll just read the verses. Verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith is a confirmation, works are a confirmation of true faith. Down in verse 26, he says this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God has called us to obedience. And really, when you look at Scripture, what he's called us to is discipleship. 
He's called us to discipleship. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we know this very well. Go therefore and make what? Just believers? Are we just supposed to tell people the gospel and you know, hope they pray a prayer and walk away and never talk to them again? Unfortunately, that's the process of, of many churches even today. Just go knock on a door, tell them a very simple gospel message, lead them in a prayer, and give them false hope. True faith will result in discipleship. The question is, are we really making disciples? Are we just making converts? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to be making disciples. John 15, 8 says this, By, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove what? To be my disciples. If we're not bearing fruit, we need to seriously question whether or not we're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because true faith will always lead us to discipleship, to spiritual growth. We should be being changed. We should be being changed. Romans 6, 1 through 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the fallacy, right? I can live however I want as long as I said the right things. As long as I prayed the right prayer. How I live doesn't matter. That's the fallacy. And, and Romans 6 tells us that's not true. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? 1 John 3, 9 through 10 says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. All of these works, these fruit, are a result of true faith. If we say that we have faith and we do not have works, we're either lying or we're self-deceived. If we can continue to openly sin and rebel against God without any desire for change, without any uh, conviction in our life, we're either lying or we're fooling ourselves. Because true faith results in works that please God. Do you really believe what God says, not just about salvation, but about how we are supposed to live? And are you obeying? See, the fallacy is that faith is all I need. Honor and obedience are for super Christians. But the reality is this, true faith produces acts of obedience and worship because it trusts the one whose word commands it. That's very important. Whose word commands it. Do you trust God enough to obey him? Secondly, the condition of true faith. The condition 
of true faith. The fallacy here is that God will be pleased with my self-righteousness. God will be pleased with my self-righteousness. And this looks a lot of different ways. Um, We'll kind of look at that here in just a second. But we know that God wants us to live in a way that pleases him. Obviously, we have these commands in Scripture that tell us how we are supposed to live in a way that's going to, to honor the Lord. And so, but if we're not careful, we, ha- we can all have different ideas of what that actually looks like. What does it look like to actually live in a way that is pleasing to God? We have the legalistic perspective that says, this is what spirituality looks like. And here's the checklist. And if you, if you meet all of these specific things, then, then you are spiritual. If you're doing these things, if you're saying these things, if you're coming to these events and all these different things. We have moralism. Well, if you just know how people feel and treat people well the way that they want to be treated, then then that's pleasing to God. We have freedom. Well, God's given us freedom, right? So I can I can pursue these things even though, you know, maybe there's something in scripture that's a warning about it or or maybe there's even commands about it, but you know what? I'm, I'm free. Again, this kind of goes back to the last one, right? I, I, can do, I can do these other things regardless of how it affects other people in the body. We have different opinions oftentimes of what it looks like to please God. As long as my heart is good, my actions don't matter. These are some of the fallacies that we see when it comes to this condition of true faith, but we look at this example of Enoch in verses five and six. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What is this condition of true faith. The condition of true faith is that it's necessary to please God. What does it say there in verse 6? And without faith, it is what? Impossible. Impossible. That word in the Greek actually is the idea of no power. There is no power, no ability to please God apart from faith. See, without faith, there is no act that we can perform, no prayer that we can pray, no emotion that we can affect, no promise we can make, no thought we can think that is pleasing to God. Have you ever thought about that? Unless the things you are doing are done in faith, they are worthless. They are wood, stay, wood hay, and stubble that will be burned no matter how good we think those works are. If we do any of those things in order to promote our virtue to God or others, it's not of faith. If we do any of those things as marks of our own standard of holiness, it's not of faith. God is not looking for busy people trying to please him with their effort. He's looking for faith-filled people simply seeking to know him and obey him. Is that your approach to pleasing God? Is it so that he'll be happy with you? 
Or is it because you know him and you love him and you desire to obey him? That is faith. Faith rather than doubt. We are so prone to doubt the word of God and it often leads us down the wrong path just like it did in Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapter 14, verses 22 through 23 says this, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is talking about um, Christian liberty, right? This is talking about conflict within the church there. But whoever has doubts is what? Is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Why is that? Could it be that because we're doing it of our own desires and our own strength and our own effort? instead of resting in what God has promised. James 1, 5 through 8 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask how? In faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. That's a harsh statement, is it not? The one who doubts should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Why, why do we doubt or how do we doubt? I think we doubt God's word in two ways. We doubt God's word by saying that it doesn't really mean what it says. This is kind of that freedom aspect, right? Well, it doesn't really mean that. That's doubting what God's word says. We doubt God's word thinking oftentimes that it doesn't give us enough. Well, God told us to live like this, but it didn't really give us all the particulars, so let me help God out. I'll, I'll think of all the things that you need to do in order to look the way that God wants us to live. That's the legalistic side. Both of those come from doubting God's word. Have you ever thought about that? Both of those sides of, of the arguments come from simply saying God's word is either not enough, and so I need to supplement it, or saying that God's word really doesn't quite mean what it says it means. And we doubt the truth of the word of God. True faith is the condition for pleasing God. How is that? Faith is required for us to know God. What does it say there in verse six? So anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, right? Must believe that he is. Well, that's easy, isn't it? What does Romans chapter one say? Romans 1, 19 through 25, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Should be easy, right? We became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Why does it take faith to believe that God even exists? Because we have suppressed the truth. We as mankind have taken the reality that we know simply by looking at creation and we have suppressed it and we have elevated mankind above it. That's why it takes faith for us to even believe that he exists. Faith is required to desire pleasing him. Required to desire pleasing him. First John 3 verses 2 through 3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, we believe that he is going to reward us. He is going to change us. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are good, of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to what? To please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Do we really believe that God is a rewarder? Or are we just living our life however we want? It takes faith to live in a way that believes that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, the fallacy is that God will be pleased with my self-righteousness. It's so easy for us to fall into that trap because we think we're so much better than we really are. But the reality, the facet is this, that true faith seeks to know God, know the God of Scripture, and please Him in what He has revealed. True faith seeks to know the God of Scripture and please Him in what He has revealed. Finally, this morning, the catalyst of true faith the catalyst of true faith. The fallacy here is that faith requires God to act how I think he should. Faith requires God to act how I think he should. It's interesting, we look at Jesus' ministry and oftentimes as he would heal people, he would say something like, go your way, your faith has made you whole. Right? Or when he sees the faith of someone, he heals them. Uh, and if we're not careful, we, we may begin to misunderstand that and assume that the faith of these people was in some way forcing Jesus to do those acts, of, those miracles. 
to, to do those things that they desired for him to do. We read in Matthew 21, 22, it says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. If we don't understand that verse in its context and in the context of Scripture, we're going to really misunderstand the power of faith. We may see it as a way to get God to give us the things that we desire. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that our desires are always bad. We may desire good things. We've prayed, even this morning, that God would heal multiple people. That God would, would do a work in a way that doctors can't do, in a way that, that we in and of ourselves cannot do. That it would be a miracle. We pray for that. We pray for that, that God would be glorified through that situation. But if we're not careful, we can lose sight of God's will and begin to focus on our will. And that's when this understanding of Scripture takes us down the wrong path, where we begin to think that faith somehow requires God to act how we think he should act. The answer is to understand faith. We talked about it last week. What is faith? Faith is confident assurance and resting in what God has promised, not what we desire. Are we resting in what God has promised or are we resting in what we think should be done? We'll go quickly here through these last few verses. Verses 9 through 16, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing together. We'll just jump in here. Faith recognizes what is temporary. Faith recognizes what is temporary. Verse 9 says this, By faith he, speaking of Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He never put down roots. He never built a home. He just lived in tents, a nomadic lifestyle in the land that he was promised. Not that he owned, but that he was promised. If you remember, I believe, I forget what chapter it was, but uh, there's only one portion of land that Abraham ever owned, and that was a grave for Sarah. And so he lived in this land, journeying. He understood that everything there was temporary. It was not the thing that was promised. It was something that was temporary, that was going to, to go away. Even just daily living with all the herds and things, that was temporary. He had to constantly be moving to take care of the animals. Verse 13 says this, These all, speaking of the, everybody that we're going to talk about later, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Not just in the land of promise, but on earth. They were strangers and exiles. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They understood that even going back to what they knew before was temporary at the end of the day, was worthless. It meant nothing compared to the promises of God. See, faith recognizes what is temporary, yet how often do we 
struggle with that reality. We get so caught up in the temporary things of this life, finances and houses and cars and status, and we begin to put our faith in those things rather than the promises of God. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Not even worth comparing. That's how Paul looked at it. The things that we deal with now aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. It reminds me of that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Are we maybe feeling a little too much at home? Are we just a little too attached to the things of this world, even to the people of this world? Faith understands what is temporal, but faith not just understands that, it reaches for what is eternal. Faith reaches for what is eternal. Hebrews 11.10, for he, again, speaking of Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to, to something else, to something better. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're looking for something else. They're looking for something better, for a, a homeland, a place to call home. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That is a, that's an amazing phrase. Someday we'll get there. All right. Um, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Are we looking for the things that are eternal? Are we reaching for the things that are eternal? Or is our rest and our hope and our faith in the temporary? Faith rests on what is promised. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. With Jacob and, and Isaac, heirs with him of the same promise. Verses 11 and 12, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered what? Him faithful who had promised. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God's promises are faithful and true. And everything that he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah were fulfilled and are even being fulfilled 
in many ways. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Does that describe your walk this morning? Are you responding properly to the word of God? Are you walking by faith and not by sight? The fallacy here is that faith requires God to act how I think he should. But the reality is that true faith is motivated not by temporal things or earthly desires, but by eternal promises of God secured for us by Christ. Are you thankful for the work of Christ this morning? Are you thankful that the promises of God are not just nebulous promises that we're just hoping actually happen? We can have confidence and assurance in what Jesus Christ has done and what God's word has said. And if we do, that is true faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that you have proven yourself over and over and over again as we read your word, as we see the great things that you have done for us. You see, we see the great things that you have done through your people, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that you are worthy of our faith. And yet, Lord, so often we, we lean on our own understanding. We lean on our own desires and our own sight rather than simply taking you at your word not trying to force it into what we desire or what we want but simply understanding who you are and what you have done and what you demand of us and by faith believing and obeying God, I pray that that would be the testimony of our lives, that we would not just be people who do good things. Even, Lord, when we think of our, of our opportunities to share the gospel, we would not just be people who, who get a lot of people to pray a prayer, Lord, but that we would, we would do what your word says, that we would, we would spread the gospel and that we would disciple others to know you to know your word, to love you, and to obey you by faith. God, we pray that that would be our reality as individuals. We pray that would be our reality as a church, that that would be our testimony, that we are a church of faith, not just of works, but that we would produce good works that you have prepared for us to do because we believe what you have said. And most of all, Lord, we pray that as we do that, that our name would not be the ones lifted up, but that you would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise that is due your name. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.